On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about the Sobe bike situation and some clever politics, good politics. This is the kind of stuff when when city councillors do something dumb, we call them on it. When city councillors do something smart and creative that doesn't necessarily require diving into tax dollars, we credit them for it. And Jason Farr did that. We'll have him on to talk about what that was. We're also going to be chatting about a report out of Italy that COVID is weakening dramatically. Is this possibly true? We'll discuss it. And then Don Robertson joins us to talk sports and what's going on south of the border and all kinds of other things. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Jason Farr, Ward 2 Counselor, joins us now. Jason, how are you today? You don't even need me. Why don't you just keep going on about what a great thing this is and I can just sit and enjoy the program. Well, listen, you you and I have had this discussion before. When council does something stupid, we mention it. And when council does something good and comes up with a creative solution that solves a problem, I think you earn the credit as well. And that's what this is. So congratulations. Thank you. And all of us uh, know what we signed up for. If anybody is in uh, this game of public service and uh, still cringes when they receive um, an opinion that uh, maybe they don't agree with, then uh, we're maybe in the wrong game. So absolutely. And and you're one of the best pundits out there, Scott. And I, I always uh, enjoy having, uh, you know, having uh, the opportunity to speak to you on the program. So, and, and this isn't obvious. There, there are occasions where we can react to, a motion such as this and it's it's easier to kind of make the fix that's palatable for almost everybody and and other times it can be a little more complicated but you're hitting it on the nail on the head and i think you probably hit it on the head uh from the perspective you had with your article in the paper as well and that's that the the main issue almost the only issue not completely but almost the only issue was money using taxpayers money and there was two arguments under that umbrella when we said yes to Sobe back in 2014, we were told never would there be an impact on the local tax levy. And everyone went, okay, and Metrolinx came along and gave us $1.5 million and so on. The rest was history, and it's the most successful bike share program in mid-sized cities in all of the world. And you, you also uh, give it accolades. The other part under the umbrella was we don't have any money right now. This is a, a situation that none of us are accustomed to we have a pandemic going on and we're talking about a potential 60 million dollar deficit last time you and i spoke we talked about that so there's there was the trepidation about future finances and then there was the recollection of the original mandate with sobe there would be no uh, uh tax levy impact so i heard that loud and clear i didn't like what i was hearing i mean i was on the motion i was offering up uh, not so much a levy impact but still taxpayer dollars through area rating and so was the ward one counselor and the ward three counselor but it didn't fly and uh i get why it didn't fly and it was the only it was the prevailing issue and i thought okay well the only way then given the vote to save this thing is to go knock on some doors make some phone calls and try to raise as much as we possibly can to make it work and we did we we, we actually still have people calling up ibi group twenty thousand dollars uh committed this morning scott so we're we're more than comfortable but that's only one side of it so while i still have a chance if you're going to break we should probably give big kudos to all the supporters of hamilton bike sharing too because their gofundme campaign is not pittance that's 60 to seventy thousand dollars right there plus they have the pedigree to operate the thing you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
Ward 2 Councillor Jason Farr joins me. We're talking about the bike share program and what he was able to do by finding donors when this thing, when council did not back it and didn't bail it out and finding private donors and charitable donors and keeping it going. And Jason, I'm wondering if this becomes then a model of sorts for other projects in the future in the city where tax dollars are difficult and you say, you know what, we have generous people. Sometimes it might mean digging them up a little bit to find out who's interested, but this could be a way forward for a lot of these smaller, medium-sized projects we want to do. Uh, it, well, I mean, we've in the, it's not a new, we would, did, did a fundraiser for the Hamilton sign and, and quickly raised the, the hundred right. and change that we needed Scott to uh, make that a reality. And everyone loves it. It's probably the most photographed object in Hamilton annually. Um, we've done fundraisers before on, on a municipal level. Sometimes it's a challenge because if it's not something that is embraced like Sobe, there's a certain segment and it's a large segment of our population that really believes in the commuter bicycle program. And in Sobe's, they've become a much a part of our fabric of steel and donuts in this city. And so it wasn't hard for them to raise $60, $70. And for me as well. I mean, it's, it's not like I had to knock on every door. People like IBI group called me and said, what can we do to help? And of course, Patrick J. McNally charitable foundation there, they're, they've stepped up twice before in our ward. And again, similar to your question, it's, uh, we wanted to do a design competition across the world on our pure eight development. Well, how much is that going to cost general manager of planning and economic development? Well, we ended up getting that cost covered because it was such a unique idea and, and very transparent and involved focus groups and all sorts of adjudication arm's length of the city. And in the end, we got a beautiful project coming, right? So, so we have done it in the past, and I know you've talked about it on your show in the past, not necessarily with me, but I've heard, heard you talk about that, almost like a user pay system, and we could do it in rec, and we can do it in other areas. The problem is, I think, when you start, uh, it get too broad, uh, people may not be interested, and then they start doing the click in the brain going, well, wait a minute, I pay taxes anyway, just cover it from the general pool. So it's not as simple as it. It was in this case for Sobe. I'll tell you, it's it, not it, going to be for everything. Time, no, it's yeah. not for everything. It's not going to be for but everything. It's, it's it's certainly to your point. When we should look outside the box and think about different ways to fund projects, especially now with all the fiscal challenge we and every other city is going to have, then we should do it. And and uh, absolutely swallow your pride if you're thinking, oh, this is kind of embarrassing. We're putting our hat in our hand. and that, There's nothing embarrassing about it at all. People want to participate, and they want to participate by giving their time and their money. It ties into it, and there's something that came up today, and i got to ask you about this, because the centerpiece focus about the finances of this whole thing that led to this dispute and everything else mm-hmm. was because, as you alert, uh, mentioned a moment ago, we have this potential $60 million shortfall, which is an albatross hanging over until we know what's going to happen. That's a, that's a lot of money. Now, the federal government today announced $2.2 billion for big cities. Do we know whether any of that, part of that, some of that is coming to Hamilton, and if we do, what it could be used for? Could this take some of that sixty million away? Oh, for sure. And I don't, I can't say. I mean, the mayor—that's his thing. The big city mayor's caucus is something he's very active in and represents us very well at, uh, as they travel about Canada and 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 lobby the federal government. Uh, great success uh, there as well from the big city's mayors, uh, focusing on 
federal bailout because it's impossible for the big cities to do it on their own. As you've mentioned in the past, that we, we've got budgets that need to balance, unlike other uh, provincial or federal budgets. So uh, I, un, un, undoubtedly, Scott, I don't have the number. We're definitely in that category of big city, and so we should be getting a piece. How much is yet to be determined, but certainly... It's it, that was very reassuring news, and it's nice to be listened to at the federal level. Do you think that the discussion, and back to the Sobe for a minute, do you think that the Sobe discussion would have played out differently if that sixty million dollars was not hanging over councillors' heads, as not knowing how we're going to get out from under that at that moment? Yes, uh, and in short, we've used area rating capital reserve dollars, so already council approved reserve dollars. Not at, we didn't we weren't saying let's go to the levy and, and get four hundred thousand dollars from the taxpayers. We said we already have in these reserve accounts four hundred thousand dollars. Let's take them out and use them for this specific purpose, and it's capital related. So that that's why the motion had an amendment to make it operating for this one time to get us six months to find a new operator. Um, yeah, I think it would have. I, I think that's one vote. I mean, it was that close. And I, I hate guessing, especially on your program, but it was that close. A tie means a loss. And it was a tie, 8-8. Eight, eight. Uh, and it was a grueling meeting, 16 hours. And it, I don't... I don't know about you, but uh, a 16-hour meeting can play tricks on the mind at hour 14, 15, and that was the final item. So that, that there's also that factor. Well, oh, I yeah. was just going to say, we've only got 20 seconds left, Jason, but do you think that like, that was a 16-hour meeting? Should that be looked at as well? We're, we're, we're sort of going into a bunch of things here, but to say we've got to cap meetings because we lose our minds after a while? Yeah, I'll tell you, you should have Judy Partridge on your program. She's got some ideas there. I mean, Toronto has two days' worth of council meetings. We're getting to that point where we probably should. That was that was a 16-hour meeting without our usual delegation process, too, Scott. So can you imagine? You know, we would have gone a whole day on Sobe with the, the, the advocates that want to speak to saving the program. I guarantee that, but we couldn't because the virtual format has write-in only. So... Oh, yeah. I mean, we definitely need to look at it. Our start times, we started at 9.30 in the morning and finished at 1.30 in the evening. So, yeah, people are going to get a little squirrely. We got a lot done. We got a lot done. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a few weeks since I had my next guest on, but we have him back today because of a story that has come out of Italy. You'll recall that when the whole COVID coronavirus thing really started to ramp up, Italy was one of the hardest hit countries. Third highest in terms of number of deaths. There are over 33,000 Italians or people in Italy. They're not all Italians, I guess. Uh, But 33,000 people in that country died. But on Sunday, a top Italian doctor said that the virus is losing its potency and is now basically a shadow of its former self. When they do swabs and everything else, the amount of bad stuff within the swab is infinitesimally smaller than what it was at the height of the crisis. Uh, Here's his quote. In reality, the virus clinically no longer exists in Italy. Is this true? And if it is, how does something like this happen and will it happen here? Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid is a uh, expert in medicine, education, health policy, knowledge translation, health emergencies. We love to bring him on the show to talk about this stuff because he knows what he's doing. Uh, Dr. Khalid, thanks for doing this again tonight. Of course, happy to speak to you. 
So, um, do, first of all, do we believe that our Italian doctor friend is tr- accurate, is true? Is what he's saying legit, or is this a, uh, a red herring? Well, I think that, first of all, I think this doctor is a high-profile physician in Italy who does deal with intensive care units. So, you know, he is legit in that sense that he is a medical doctor, he is a practicing physician, and dealing with COVID-19 patients. However, uh, quickly, as soon as he released those statements, the world experts have jumped on the boat to say that there is no scientific evidence to prove this. And I actually went back and reviewed what he, uh, what he reported on. And what he's talking about is that the way the virus uh, manifested in the patients that he studied showed that they weren't as bad as they thought they would be in comparison to other cases. And this is what prompted the World Health Organization to quickly make an announcement today saying they've reviewed all the scientific evidence behind what this doctor has stated and they find no truth to it. As of now, there is no scientific evidence to prove that there is no clinically existent anymore in COVID-19. Okay. Uh, Is it possible for a virus to morph from one thing into another or to essentially lose steam along the way at some point? Yes, so viruses in their nature do mutate, as we like to call it in the scientific world, which means they just change the way they look and they manifest themselves. So they could technically, in other pandemics we've seen, or sorry, infectious diseases, the virus could change its shape, and therefore the manifestation of how it looks like in clinical symptoms can change. However, for COVID-19, when you review all the evidence so far, there is no indication that COVID-19 is changing. Actually, Scott, what we are seeing is that the severity is still the same and the rate of transmission is still the same. So people, simply put, people are still dying from COVID-19. That hasn't changed. And the way it's spreading has not changed. His, and I've got a, um, okay, so what he said though, and again, we can take issue with what he said, but here's his quote. And, and this doesn't sound like, what the World Health Organization, it sounds like the World Health Organization and he are talking about two completely different things because what he says is the swabs that were performed over the last 10 days show a viral load in quantitative terms that were absolutely infinitesimal compared to the ones carried out a month or two months ago. So he is clearly saying that the virus potency is way down. Well, he also only studied 10 patients. Uh, okay, 10 days, okay. And so then the sample is different. But actually, you bring up a very good point here. I don't think we should be discrediting this doctor. I think what he, what he saw was true. Nobody is discrediting his evidence. But what we're trying to say is that let's put it into context. Let's help explain what this means. Uh, there's no doubt that most likely the patients that he did study is accurate. They had less viral load. Now, for the, for the average person out there, even myself, to understand viral load, we can compare this to HIV. So HIV, when it affects somebody, the viral load changes. You know, it can be very, very high, and this is when we, you know, we get concerned about AIDS and very severe complications. But when it's a very low viral load, the patient can live a very long and healthy life. So it's the same analogy here. It's probably, it's probably that the patients he was studying had a low viral load of COVID-19. That doesn't change the fact that they did get COVID-19, and that some, some of them might actually present with very severe symptoms. And I mean, we've seen over and over again, Scott, that the majority of patients who, who do get COVID-19 have mild symptoms, but some of them who get it can have drastic and severe consequences, including death. Okay, so let me try and maybe understand what you were saying and see if I've got this right then. Is it possible 
that if I am someone who uh, doesn't have an immunity deficiency, if I'm not susceptible to this, if I'm not someone with a weakened state, whatever else, could the load, could my body defeat that to a point where the the viral load would seem smaller because my body has fought it off compared to someone who was compromised? Yeah, so that is partly the, the case. So people who are immunocompromised of older age who present with a weaker immune, immune system have a much higher chance of getting COVID-19 and developing very severe consequences. And but would they have a higher load? Would the viral load be higher in someone who was compromised? Well, the, the load depends on the patient and how he actually gets the infection. The load can change from one patient to another. It doesn't change how the body reacts to it. So okay. what I'm trying to say here is that you could have a very low viral load and still react really badly to it. And I think that's what the point that the experts were trying to make. So I'm really glad you're going this far with this discussion because what the experts are saying is that it, the load does matter, but the consequences are the same. So it depends on the host. So what they're saying is it's, it's most likely the patient that this doctor was studying, uh, the way their body reacted to the virus was different than others. We can't generalize that the pu- general population. We can't say now that, oh, depending on your viral load, you're going to get different uh, sort of manifestation of COVID-19. There's no way to predict that. We don't know everybody's genomic uh, genotype in the world, and we don't know who's going to get it and how they're going to react to it. So from a public health perspective, uh, it's really, really important to say that we really don't want you to get COVID-19 to begin with. We don't want to take the risk to see what, how your body will react to that viral load. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Do we know if, leaving aside the second wave idea, do we know if weather is going to have anything to do with this? Well, um, uh, that's a really good question. We know that uh, COVID-19 has affected countries in the world where there was hotter temperatures. So Singapore is a good example of that. In some parts of China where that has much, much warmer temperatures that we have right now in the summer. So it's unlikely that we will see a lower rate of COVID-19 just based on that evidence that we've seen it in temperatures that are higher. Uh, there were reports earlier that that might be the case. I doubt it. I mean, look, we're uh, now June 1st. We're not seeing really that massive decline in the numbers yet. I doubt it. And given our previous experience with other countries, it's unlikely to be the case. I think what's going to happen is just waiting for this idea of herd immunity to develop in the community, which is we're still far away from that. Are we testing? So when we test with the swabs and the people go in and they, they, you know, we, we now have opportunities for people if they believe they may be, they may have it or whatever else we can now do this, but are we testing for strength? Are we, are we doing the same test? The Italian doctor says that he's doing to test for the strength of the virus, or are we just testing to say that you have the virus or not? No, we do test for the viral load or how much of the virus is in the patient's body. I mean, I think that's, I'm not quite confirmed on that because I don't run the test myself, but looking at the results, they all look very similar. So no, it's not like that he's doing some special test on those patients. We just extended our state of, or we're about to, I think, in Ontario, extend mm-hmm. our state of emergency until the end of the month. So. Yeah. When you first heard this story, or when we first heard the story out of Italy, the thought was, oh, maybe things are weakening, maybe this is not necessary. But if we're not now necessarily believing that all the coronavirus is weakening, does this then make sense still? Uh, sorry, I just started to extend the state of emergency. If, if we don't yeah. now necessarily believe that it's dying out or getting much, much, much weaker, does it make sense then to extend the state of emergency? 
Listen, Scott, I'll tell you the truth. I think that looking at how much this uh, generated attention in the world from top, top experts and to the doctors claims tells me that we're all looking for some hope, you know, some reassurance that things are going to get back to normal. So, uh, And we were all hoping that his this report is true, that it is lower potency, that there is a hope at the end of this tunnel. And by that, I mean it's because we're getting impatient with waiting for vaccine, we're getting impatient for treatment, and we're mostly getting impatient with being stuck at home. I get that. Uh, extending the ban, extending the emergency is necessary because we're still not there yet, and we need to make sure that we really get ahead of this you know, good and clear and not get ahead of this and then to have to go back into extreme lockdown measures when we see insane numbers of uh, COVID-19 patients, which we don't have right now and we don't want to get there. Just going back to something you said a few minutes ago, though, you were mentioning that, that viruses do mutate, they do change. If that's the case, how do you make a vaccine for something that becomes a moving target? So every year, we, we do similar, uh, similar way to think about it is the influenza vaccine. Every year, we, you know, we suspect what the mutations were going to be, and our scientists and our researchers in the lab develop vaccine that will protect us for the most sort of dangerous, as we like to call it, or the most mutated version of that virus. It doesn't protect us from all the strains of it that mutated, but the most common ones that we suspect. So the first vaccine that will come out for COVID-19 will change over time as the virus does mutate. But if we are, and I've heard that before, that the that we generally we're not guessing, but we're using our best science to say, okay, this is the type the strain of influenza that's going to be most hurtful this year. But does that mean that we could all get a COVID vaccine that the next year there could be a slightly different strain that it would not prevent it? Well, we, next year then we would develop a newer vaccine. <laughs> So it'd be like, just like the influenza vaccine, every year it's a different strain that it targets. So uh, by, by then, Scott too, we would have had hopefully developed herd immunity. And by that, I mean is that there's enough of us in the population that have gotten the vaccine so that there's not this catastrophic you know, event that's happened with COVID-19. It will be like, just like the influenza virus, right? So not all of us get vaccinated from it. Yes, there's high rates of death rates in influenza, but there's not this massive lockdown because the idea is that the influenza We've developed herd immunity that the majority of the population is protected. Currently, the majority of the population is not protected from COVID-19. Dr. Amos Fira, uh, Ahmad Firas Khalid, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this today. Happy to speak to you. Take care. Stay well. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, who is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys. He is the guy who runs ComChoice Realty in Dundas. He is, uh, I, I, I had not realized this somehow, Don, until I saw this week. Was it the 2014 Dunda- Dundasian of the year? Is that right? Yeah. I didn't yeah, know that. <laughs> well, they couldn't find anybody else. What, what year? 213? 213, 214, something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, was, good uh, for you. I had no idea. Well, at least there's one per one respectable person on the air right now. What's uh, yeah, yeah, and you do a good job. <laughs> how how would you stumble across that? I don't know. Like I thought that when I was driving up the road and saw your giant ad at the bend there, that uh, maybe you would have put in giant golden letters with a crown on it, Dundasian of the Year, 2014, Dundasian. Really? Dundasian? Yeah. That's Is that really how you say it? Huh. That's how I say it, but I don't pronounce much right. <laughs> Dundasian sounds like, it sounds like gassy. I don't know that that works for everybody down there. 
Have um, you been down video. there lately? A lot of gas, <laughs> a lot of Mexican food. It's uh, so well, belated congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I'm only a few years behind, but well, I, I it was they came to me and I said no, I didn't want to even be nominated, and because I don't live in Dundas. I thought because maybe like the stars on the Walk of Fame, you have to pay for your own award, and you didn't want to be nominated for that reason. Well, I didn't get to bring that up. Uh, that that surprised me when I learned that a few years ago. That the people who me get too. those stars on the Walk of Fame, I think they pay fifty or sixty thousand dollars to get that. I mean, honestly, you could get a star on the Walk of Fame if you can find a sponsor and you're willing to put up the fifty or sixty grand U.S. The have you seen them? We uh, last May a year ago, almost right now, we were down there walking along Hollywood Boulevard and looking at them. Yes. I was, uh, Susan and I were down there a couple of years ago when her daughter Veronica lived in LA and it was a great reason to go because I'd never been in, uh, well, I'd been with, with the Oilers to a hockey game and like spent a night there. And that's why I found out, like they buy them. You know? Yeah. Well, that's quite an honor. And if you are, and I know there are people who get them sponsored for them because they are so famous. It's like, you know, if you're, I don't know, Lucille Ball or Gregory Peck or someone, you know, back in the golden days of Hollywood and they go up to Lucille Ball and they say it's $60,000. I'm pretty sure that they waived it or they found someone to pay it. So Lucy didn't have to do it herself. Um, you, would, you would hope it started out as a true honor. I mean, Donald Trump stars there. No, it's not. It was, but it keeps getting smashed. So they, uh, I don't know if it's still there, but no, we did the, we did the walk and then, you know, it goes on. And what people don't realize, I don't think if you haven't been there, it's blocks and blocks and blocks. And it's not just one street. Like you go down side streets and, and by the time you're done, you need to see a chiropractor because your neck is so screwed up from staring down the whole way. But it's, it's cool. It's hard not to bump into people, isn't it? That too. And, and with your camera out. And here's the other thing that we, um, this is totally off topic, but that we did not realize, and this is my boo-boo that almost got us in a fist fight. Um, down by the, what is it still called? The Groman's Chinese Theater. I think that's what it's yep. still called. Yep. Um, they had all these characters, like people dressed as Spider-Man yep. or Darth Vader yep. or whatever. And so, of course, I just, when my wife and our friend walked by. I just snapped a picture with Spider-Man in the background and Spider-Man, I didn't, wasn't thinking that Spider-Man does this for a living and then demanded angrily 20 bucks for the picture. So I gave him two. I said, no, you, you weren't worth 20. I gave you two. And I thought we almost had to flee for our life from Spider-Man. Um, word of advice. If you, if you happen to see the characters, don't take their picture. They don't like it unless you give them a lot of money. <laughs> Just, just, everything just, a, cash. just a word of advice. Oh yeah. No check. No, 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 no checks. <laughs> okay. Well, Don, let me, uh, that is all light and fluffy and, uh, and fun and not too serious. Let's jump in for a few minutes here. What's happening down in the States. Cause it's a mess. And one of the questions that's come up and, and Bob O'Neill and Steve Milton and Rick Zamper and I, we do a thing on YouTube called home games. You can go and people can go and find it here. Look up home games, Hamilton. And we, three times a week, we, hash out some issue and today we talked about this but i wanted to ask you with everything that's going on right now what should professional what should the role be of professional or even amateur but like well-known amateur athletes be what role if any should should jock should athletes have in this now 
um, I try and follow along with everything that's going on. You're talking about the pandemic or the riots. The riots, the racism, the, the you know, the, the I mean, it, it's it, race has once again lunged to the forefront. And there are some people who are very comfortable talking about it. There are some who have jumped in and you're not really sure, but they're saying stuff. There's others who don't necessarily, I guess, feel it's their place. What, what, where is the place for athletes in this? Because I think we put them on podiums or, um, right. Like everybody's just rises above, above Michael Jackson who put out the state or Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan, who put out a statement. And I think it's an absolute wonderful time for them to use their soapbox and, and be true leaders and speak from their heart and speak with common sense and, and, and lead and lead everyone, not one particular race or anything else, lead everyone and lead by example. Now, perhaps many of them have to be careful because now with the way the world is, there's probably skeletons in almost everybody's closet. So they don't have to be careful not to be called a hypocrite, but you know, some of them are, and I applaud them, and I think they can make a difference. The problem that I see is is that they, the masses, the ones that want to do what they're doing, would much prefer to follow a rebel rouser than a sports hero, and that's too bad. But the the good ones that so many of the youth look up to, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for them to show leadership and, and, and take charge if they can and make a difference. And I agree with you and I agree with the other part you're saying, although it makes it very complicated. And and this is part of what we talked about again this morning on the, on the home games um, channel is what do you do if you are someone who necessarily fans don't like, if you're perceived as a bad guy, a heel or whatever, or if you do have skeletons in your closet, is it better for you to speak up regardless because we want to give you a second chance or at that point are you maybe should you be saying you know what i'll leave that for people who have a little more of a moral authority to make this kind of comment or do you just say this is a big enough issue everybody should jump in well i think if your image isn't tarnished by something terrible um, oj oj would have a little trouble stepping up um i think it's probably a good good opportunity for good guys that have made a mistake and there's been lots of good guys probably me included that have made mistakes but it's a wonderful opportunity to, to again show some leadership some credibility and it maybe even they'd be doing it for the wrong reasons but they'd be trying to build their image as a good person back up again but if the young kids will listen to them and, and people in general will take something positive from it then they should sure take advantage of it and they should do it and do it for the right reasons and again, I, you know, like radio is way better when you and I get fighting about something. I'm having a hard time disagreeing with anything you're saying on this one. The one thing also that you just said there, the, and I find it fascinating is, all right, everybody should do this. Everyone should stand up. I, I would be willing to bet you money that there are some athletes who have made statements that have done it because they feel now they have to because everyone else is doing it. And so I have to say something as well. Uh, is that it, doing it under those circumstances? Is that better than not doing it at all? Even if it may not be fully, if your heart's not fully into it, but you know that for your brand or for whatever, for whatever else you should still do it. No, I think, I think there'd be a lot of 
<clears throat> pardon me, athletes that would that truly do want to speak out, truly do have something positive to say, but they're fearful that if it's taken the wrong way, you know, it has to be in the right context. Uh, but once guys like Michael Jordan do it, then it kind of makes it okay to do it. But you know agents and uh, marketing firms are going to wordsmith everything that comes out. Like you're not likely going to get a big-time athlete to just do an off-the-cuff interview by chance that he say something wrong. So it'll be it'll be well script, scripted. I think probably those are the guys, the big-name guys, the guys that will really provide a great interview and, and a great uh, – comment likely are the ones that do it from their heart and they do a live interview and they, they, you know, if people try and find fault with it, then shame on them if they're trying to do the right thing. You mentioned Michael Jordan and and it's so interesting you say that because we just watched the documentary everybody did about the Michael Jordan, the 10 part series on Michael Jordan. And one of the knocks against him perpetually was that during his career, he never spoke out. He was a salesman. He was a, a brand. He was a, a pitch man, but he didn't get involved in anything that was controversial. And now that that documentary comes out and that part of his personality or weakness of his story is exposed, it's really interesting to me that all of a sudden here he is making a comment. And, and that's kind of what I'm thinking about is, is, you know, are you, like, are you really, I, I'm assuming he really believes that. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that he really believes that, but it's just interesting to me that, all right, so now is the time I'm going to make this statement. It's, it's, you want people, you want people to speak from the heart and be truthful and you don't want to be cynical and say people are doing it just to enhance their brand. And I don't know, I, I, does it make a difference? I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but it's, it. You can be, you can, you can be cynical. I mean, there's, I, I don't believe it's a coincidence that Nike came out with a commercial that said this time, don't just do it. And it was pretty impactful. I saw a clip of it and it was impactful enough that, uh, Adidas retweeted it. So you got Nike doing something positive and Air Jordan and Nike's all over. Michael Jordan, that that statement was particularly well written. Michael Jordan, and I, you know, I, I certainly don't follow him well enough to know, but uh, the depth of which he said may have been him reading it over before it was sent out. I don't know if he wrote it, but it was pretty effective. Yeah, I. You would hope that all these people would have this in their heart anyway, where it, you don't have to question whether or not it's a PR thing. And, and, and maybe we're just being, maybe I'm being too cynical by saying that I I would just love to believe that you would get involved because, and I, and I hope this is the case for all of them, that you get involved because this is something you believe strongly about, not because you know what, all athletes these days are no longer just athletes, they're brands. And this is a, a moment when your brand can't be left behind and you can't look like you're not part of this because this is a branding thing. I, 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 I don't know if it makes a difference or not, but I, I really hope that it's a, with all of these people that are all these athletes and all these people, whoever else it is, that it's because you really, really believe what you're saying. Cause th- otherwise, I don't know. Otherwise the whole thing just seems so 
fake and this is not a time to be fake. Well, it, 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 it may very well, and, I, and I'm like you, I hope. It's very heartfelt. I mean, Michael Jordan's been away from the game a long time. Um, he's probably heard the criticism, and you know, for whatever the re- maybe it's not in his personality, but it's also an age thing. You know, you have kids, you have a family, and you grow older. Uh, I'm a little more outspoken in some areas than you are, but rest assured, there are things that I said 35 years ago that my filter might catch, and I haven't got much of a filter, but as you get older and you think about things differently and you, you put things in a different perspective, and uh, he may well be doing that. I mean, I, I prefer to give him the benefit of the doubt and think it's all for all the right reasons, and he thinks he can make a difference. Yeah, I, you know what? I hope so. I hope so, and uh, we'll see. We'll, I mean, we'll see who comes out and who says what. It's it's an interesting one as well because number of places today I saw some comments online saying from people and, you know, average people just saying who should or shouldn't be opening their mouth in this. And some believe that every prominent athlete, whether white or black or Asian or anything else, should speak up. And others have said very loudly that, if you're a if you're not a black person or a black athlete, that this is your time to stand down. I don't know how everybody wades through this thing. I, I, you got to be very careful. You got to be, as I say, very honest and hope that your honesty shows. If you're an athlete and that people look at this and they say, you know what, good. I'm glad that you spoke out and you were you were from the heart. I, I will say, and I, I have I, I saw the some of them, uh, not all of them. Obviously, I haven't seen all of them. I think we can tell, Don, I think we can tell. I think we're savvy, not just you and I, everybody. I think we're savvy enough to read through a statement that somebody has written from the heart and, and a statement that somebody's agent has sat down and penned into a perfect, perfect thing. And, and, and you know what? I, I, I'm going to be more paying attention to the ones that look like they were written from someone's heart. Me too. And those are the real ones. Um, and I think, Sometimes agents, lawyers, teams, PR um, um, offices and, and, and coordinators dig too deep into it. Like sometimes just let an athlete say what he thinks. I mean, the, well, it might, yeah, it might not be perfect English, but if it's what he thinks and what he says and it's hometown to him, you know, like Philadelphia's had their problems. Um, you know, if there's a, there's an athlete from Philadelphia and, one of the communities or the community he grew up in is having, you know, basically, I, I mean, there, there's a big difference between protests and riots. And in, in a lot of cases, I think they're closer to riots than they are protests. I mean, in Toronto, there was a big protest. In Hamilton, there was a big protest. None of them, you know, they were people just marched and because they felt, felt, felt strongly about something. There was no violence. There was no destruction. Um, it's like Vancouver when the Canucks won the Stanley Cup and all of a sudden there was riots in the streets. Mostly there was just a bunch of fans that had too much beer. And But there's always, you know, the bad guys that make make it look bad for a lot of people. And it's, it's unfortunate. And sometimes the cause gets mixed because of it. So I hope they're doing it for the right thing. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, okay, Don. There... 
you are a general manager of an NHL team. You are the uh, general manager of an NHL team. You have, I would propose, I I hate what the NHL has done with their system here where they've got uh, some teams going into the made-up playoffs and then they still get to bounce kind of back into the draft lottery, blah, blah, blah. Again, I go back. You're a general manager of an NHL team. They create a system that says you can get into the playoffs and have your shot at the playoffs, but if you do, you are not in any way in the draft lottery or you can take your spot in the draft lottery and pass on getting into the playoffs this year because you don't think your team is very good. What do you do? Go directly to my owner and ask him what I'm supposed to do. (laughs) Because that's who hires and fires me. And I would stake out a position and say, here's where I think our odds are. Uh, I think we'd have made the playoffs because we had a couple guys out hurt. They're now healthy because we've been off forever. And I think we got a shot. And I think we can generate some revenue. Um, And you'll get some money. Well, not this year. Not this year because there's no home game. Well, they may get something. I don't know. I'm I'm sure they're going to have to prorate a little bit um, of the TV money. But if if the TV money is just flat basically across the league, I don't know the format, right? But I know the guy I go to. It's the guy that pays the bills because you don't want him walking in and blowing his stack saying, what are you thinking and where do you want to work? So I would think that's an ownership decision. If if I had to make it, I'd always take a chance on my team if I felt good about it. I'd want to be in the playoffs. All right. So looking at the NHL standings right now and who's going to make it in, the 24th team is Montreal. If I'm Montreal, I'm probably saying we'll take our chance in the playoffs because you've got Carey Price, and if he gets hot enough, he could win it by himself. But then next is is Chicago and Arizona, and if you were either of those two teams – are you not saying in my scenario here where you get to be in the playoffs or in the draft lottery as it is every other year, mm, Chicago, Arizona, Minnesota, above them, we have no chance whatsoever. Let's get a good player. Well, if I'm, if I'm Chicago, I, I bow out and take my, take my shot at a good draft pick because they do have to rebuild. I don't think there's enough legs there. I think if you're the Coyotes and the Coyotes – really need to to kind of advance in the playoffs for marketability they've had they've had their share of high draft picks they're the ones that if they could pull off a vegas like run i know the format's different but if they could do well in the playoffs as an overall franchise it would help them so i think there's a fundamental difference in in looking at both of them chicago no they're not going anywhere you know uh, the coyotes are young they're aggressive the experience would do them a lot of good the the shy hawks the experience isn't going to do them any good because they've got they got guys playing they're almost my age I, I, big difference when when vegas though had their big run and your point is well taken they got to play a lot of home games in front of the home fans and really build up the excitement and have that great pregame thing and whatever else under the current circumstance of what they're going to do this year, Arizona, I don't believe they're one of the 10 teams that's in the mix to be a hub city. So and even if it was, there's no fans there. I, I, if I'm them, yeah, you know what? You could get in the playoffs, I suppose. And you could maybe, maybe win a few games, I suppose, maybe even go on a run. But at that point, is anybody really watching you? And does it really have the same benefit as saying, 
let's take that one more good player and then do it next year when we're back to some kind of normal. Well, I, I think the problem with uh, Phoenix, as you outlined, is nobody's watching and nobody cares. I think they should take the shot. Well, first of all, Gary Batman will make him go in because he, he went down low enough to make sure they'd be in. But right. I, I think they need the exposure on the national market, and they need to grab themselves some significance in Phoenix. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, there's look, there's teams that are well into the playoff mix. That And I know that no general manager in his right mind, if you're in the 13th, 14th, 12th, 11th spot, there's no general manager who would say, you know what, I'm going to actually go and take a take a spot, take a shot at the lottery instead of playing here because I don't think we can win. Let me throw out the Toronto Maple Leafs who are going to have to play Columbus first, I believe, a team they struggle with, and then probably Boston second, a team we know about the history there. And, you know, there's no chance that Toronto would ever say, we'll pass on the playoffs to get into the draft lottery. The flip side would be, you know what, if you lose to Columbus in the first round, which is very possible, then you've just screwed it up anyway, and, and you would have been better off to do that. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, you can't. The NHL yeah, really hard to step in, right? The, the, there's, there isn't a chance that the NHL are not going to make Toronto be in the playoffs. I mean, Rogers have spent billions of dollars, and they're not just going to let the Leafs opt out. And that's why this situation is what it is. They've brought 24 teams in so that every team, just about almost every Canadian team is in the playoffs and most of the big U.S. markets. That's why they've gone to 24 teams. Gee, and what will that help? That will help the TV ratings and who pays all the money to the NHL because they're not getting a dime out of fans. Hmm. Well, look look who will not be in. And tell me how many of these are giant TV markets. Buffalo, not so much. New Jersey. Not so much. Anaheim, Los Angeles, yeah, maybe. San Jose, mm. Ottawa, no. And Detroit, well, with the team that Detroit has, no. So, I mean, the NHL has gone perfectly down just to the level where Montreal is the last team where you go, all right, all right, we're, um, we've got the teams in there that we need to have in there. I I don't, I wasn't there at the meetings. I uh... Really? wasn't even invited, which was rather surprising, but you, you got to know that Rogers had a say in this. I would believe they must have. I would, I, I would believe that. I would absolutely believe that. I mean, look, you're not going to have any crowds and, and I don't blame them. You're not going to have any crowds in the stands. You're not going to sell any tickets. So you've got to do something that's going to attract an audience. And if you can go down far enough to get the Montreal Canadiens in, which is a big, big market, you want to have as many Canadian teams as possible. So they at least hang in for a while that some team or teams is still in the mix. And you also managed to drag in the Blackhawks and you managed to get the, uh, say the Coyotes in there and you managed to get Minnesota, which is a big market for NHL hockey. And you managed to get Nashville, which you love in Florida, um, you know, it, it, it works for you. And what's it all boiled down to? Money. Yep. As always, had, money. Had to, get, had to get the right, they had to get the right mix in there. And it would have been interesting to see if they could not have got Montreal, Toronto, unless they let all 32 teams in, right? Like, it would have been interesting the format and how different it might have been if the bubble teams were were Toronto, 
or I mean, the teams that were out of it, but the bubble teams were uh, Buffalo and, you know, Florida. If they'd have expanded the size of the playoffs to get those guys in, I think not. But when it comes down to audiences, and that's all they've got, nobody can buy a ticket. I'm I'm a little surprised they didn't go to 28 only to get Anaheim and Los Angeles in just to get California because all three of your California teams are out. Yeah. But again, I, I and when people are tuning in and going, well, what are you talking about bailing out to have a chance at the draft pick? The the way it works now is that the teams, so the 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 Buffalo, New Jersey, Anaheim, Los Angeles, San Jose, Ottawa, Detroit are the only teams that could possibly win the first overall draft pick now. But the other teams that lose in the play-in round will go into a second lottery of some kind and it's it's confusing but i i i would have been fascinated it, to me it's kind of the same thing as when they used to have remember they had the all-star draft a few years ago for a couple of years yeah where you and you know what it was stupid but it was compelling television because you want to see who's going to take who and that would have been absolutely compelling television if each general manager had to stand up and say we're playing or we're taking the draft uh you would have had an hour of gripping stupid but gripping television yes uh again they all i know where they all would have got their marching orders from i'm sure the owners would have wanted input on every one of those decisions and even if the owner said we're playing for it if you then lost you're still screwed don i mean you know that the general the owner is never going to fire himself no, no, they they always seem to hang on to their jobs, don't they? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, since we're not going to have a crowd, and that seems to be a virtual certainty that there will be no crowd in the stands for any kind of playoffs that they're going to do, here's something. Let's mic up all the players so we can hear the chatter and we can pick up stuff that the players are saying. You've been on benches. Uh, I don't think anyone would be shocked to know that occasionally some spicy language is used. Would that be, would that idea, leaving aside the swearing, because they, if they do that, they know that's what they're getting. But would there be anything entertaining or illustrative if you mic'd up the players? Would you get anything that would help the fans at home or make it more entertaining for them? No, because it wouldn't be realistic. First of all, if you take the swearing out, not many of them would have much to say. Um, you know, nobody's going to tell anybody they're going to carve their eyes out or, you know, keep your head up or I'll knock it off. Those days are kind of gone, but, <clears throat> you know, the uh, helping the official with instructions sometimes, I'm pretty good at that on the bench. Uh, you know, you wouldn't get near as much of that, so you wouldn't get a real image. And the guy with his finger on the um, the beeper, you know, the, the seven-second delay, Oh yeah, you couldn't. Ha- you couldn't have a seven second. Pardon me. You couldn't have a seven second delay, or the whole thing would be out of context, right? There'd be a guy sitting down on a bench, and they'd be picking up what he said seven seconds ago. It'd have to be in real time, and I don't think there's a network in the world that have got the balls to try that, or the NHL. Well, but you would. would be- yeah, you could never do it live. You're right because we've we've all been around hockey players and other athletes. Uh, you would get carpal tunnel syndrome trying to run the sensor button if you did that live. Uh, but if you did it on some sort of delay, the ratings would go up. Well, 
Could you, I mean, look, the NHL, and I, I've said this before, and I'm not sure this is exactly what I had in mind, but I've suggested before, and a lot of other people have too, not an original idea, I'm sorry, that this is the opportunity to try anything that's brand new that you've never done before, TV-wise, broadcasting-wise, whatever. And is there a possibility to say, you know what, we're going to put a, a live channel, a live mic channel with a warning that this is the adults only channel and you can hear exactly what's going on on the bench and the guys can say what they want to say. I, I, I'm, I don't know. Well, what do you do? I I get it. I mean, okay. So if you do that, like uh, I'm not here to promote sports net, but they're going to carry the playoffs. So if you go to sports net five, you can get every, every player's mic and everything else. And what do you do if everybody absolutely loves it? Just carry on that there's always going to be a special uh, channel you can watch the games on, but you can't let your kids watch it? Yeah. I mean, look, you don't think that if they were to stumble upon something that got good ratings and it didn't matter what it was, they would show it? Of course they would. Oh, I, I think the ratings would be great. I mean, uh, I'm, well, I can't say I promote foul language. I mean, I talk like a trucker. I have hockey talk half the time this this is the quietest hour i have in my week and i still can't believe i haven't blown it yet but you never know if, if you listen every monday night it's going to happen at some point but that that's the most fun and i think people who watch hockey kind of understand it everybody's been mad some people use different language than others you're very articulate at all times i'm not um but i think for the most part people know that's how hockey players talk. I'd like to mic the referees. I mean, in the old days, I know some of the referees uh, uh, got in a bit of trouble. I, I know I got suspended for a game for my language once in the playoffs. So, I, I, mean, I think you're right, Don. I think you're right that people would watch. I think it would be highly, highly watched until it got heated and somebody said something that even, I'm not even talking about racial epithets but something that somebody in the audience found more offensive than just the regular obscenities and the the risk to the nhl the risk to the player the risk to everybody is just too high i I mean to me the idea of miking players live in any sport is to i mean even the cfl when they do the uh the live mic game they don't have the mic on all the time. And so the quarterbacks know, for example, and the coaches know you guys are on, but they don't have every linebacker. They don't have every lineman who's mic'd up where, you know, so, so you're aware if you're one of those guys. And and Scott, you're right. They have done it. They've even done it with hockey a little bit. Um, But they also, the producers or directors pick the clips they want to show in a replay and they show you the chatter they want to show you. And it's probably limited as to what some of it can be. The the interesting thing is that now, which I still have trouble understanding, but they have a rinkside color commentator. And I, I know that they have to be careful what's said when the players are going by those guys because the mics pick it up. Yeah, it's look, there's there's interesting ideas out there for creative people who want to do something with the broadcast. And I hope they will because... I, as I say, I think this is, it, it's going to be the summertime. It's going to be, 
it's just your opportunity. It's totally different from normal hockey. It's your opportunity to try stuff. And, you know, one or two of these things are going to click. One or two of the things that they do that are really creative and really, you know, when they first mention it in the boardroom that are way out there, all of a sudden you're going to go, wait, that's a great idea. When you see it, why didn't we do that before? And some of them will be totally ludicrous. You'll go, this is insane. But some, some of them, mm. I couldn't agree with you more. There's never been a better opportunity to give things that are a little bit talk they've been talked about, but nobody's really said, you know, we better, we better not, we better be politically correct. We have to be careful what we do. Now is absolutely the time. I mean, I think back to the XFL who had the camera on a, either a wire or they had a hook to a bird that was smart enough to follow them around. But you know, the overhead shots and, and the, like the NFL picked up a lot of good ideas from those yep. because the new league had nothing to lose. That's know exactly the NFL right. Isn't new, but it's the playoffs are going to be in July. Let me let me ask you this: Do you plan on watching? I will be watching. Um, I will be tuning in, but i I don't know what the world is going to look like in July or August, and I don't know okay. uh, honestly. And then so oh, you know, after all this time, if they if they allow us out of our house finally, and we can now gather again. People are totally stir crazy. Are they going to sit at home then to watch hockey? Are they going to say, no, I'm going to my buddy's place for a barbecue every night. Uh, We don't know. We don't know. We'll see. They're going to come up with something. It's going to be a lot better than watching a rerun of Modern Family. Or as I saw on TV on the listings the other day, classic pool. If you can now have pool matches that are considered classics, we have literally delve down into that part of the shelf in the sports network where they are dusty and cobwebby and they go, we're never going to use this again. Well, guess what? The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.